Hello and welcome to DigFinVox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, subscribe, share, get that algorithm to work. My guest today is Dusan Sovinovich, who is managing partner at True Global Ventures, a distributed venture capital business that invests a lot in artificial intelligence, Web3, and other cutting edge technologies. I spoke with Dushan about his vision for why the new wave of AI and generative AI will create the bridge that will mainstream the Web3 economy. Dushan Stoyanovich, welcome to DigFinVox. Thank you. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. You have been uh, around in venture investing in all kinds of areas, including fintech and Web3 for quite a while. You are, I guess, the, the ringleader in chief at Global uh, uh, Ventures. Uh, uh, talk us a little bit just about the way that your organization is structured, what makes it a little bit different from other traditional VCs uh, at True Global Ventures, and what is the, uh, then we'll get into some of the themes you guys are focusing on for 2023. Yes, so I think uh, one thing that is very, very different uh, from us compared to other VCs is that uh, we have a huge um, skin in the game uh, when we actually do the investments. So originally TGV 1, 2, and 3 was really only partnership money, and we had no LPs. And then in TGV 4 plus, as we called it, and the plus was standing for in, you know including LPs, mm -hmm. we put in about $25 million of our own money, and us is about 30 partners who are responsible for the investments. Um, and about 90 came from LPs, so 25 million out of 113. And in the Opportunity Fund, the last fund uh, that we uh, basically raised last year, we actually increased that to 62.3 million coming from the 13 GPs, and that's 62.3 of the total fund size of 146. So it's about 40% commitment. So okay. it's it's a lot of skin in the game there. And, and that also kind of explains why the organization works. Uh, we have 30 partners who are actively running TGV4 base and 13 that are uh, running the Opportunity Fund. If you have on an average investment that you put in as a GP of 4 million, you are you know, really focused on that those investments will succeed. How do you, when you got so many uh, GPs involved around the world with a variety of expertise, uh, how do you come up with a focus and say, okay, well, amongst all these different people, we think there's a couple of themes that are going to stand out. It's sort of, a, I mean, do you think of it that way? Are there like investment themes and stories, or is it just maybe something arises from the muck of the different decisions you make? And but it's 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 not it's not a causation thing. It's just a it's just circumstance. No, it is actually. I mean, you're right. We got actually we 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 don't do our investment fees every year. That might some other people might do it. We did it in 2018, and we did it now. And then actually, yes, we do really, really profoundly, you know, look at external data, what, what the partners believe in and come up with a thesis. So we did come up with a thesis in 2018, which was actually shared among all our partners at the time. So it was a fairly kind of decentralized distributed process. And yeah, some of that we kind of nailed down in 2018. Um, we believe, you know, that the blockchain gaming, entertainment, the metaverse would become big. And we invested in, you know, in the crash of, of blockchain in 2019. And we were lucky to invest into companies like Animoca and Sandbox at the time. Other themes like infrastructure and financial services that we believed in worked out okay. But one thing that didn't work out at all 
uh, was actually, we believe that there would be an interface between blockchain and artificial intelligence, and that that would be a theme. That didn't work out at all in 2018, 1920. So we had to close down that vertical because we couldn't see any, any kind of traction or any kind of companies doing that seriously. Right. So on the AI and blockchain thing, I think that's something that you're revisiting now. Uh, why did that not pan out from in the past five years? Well, I, I think it was a little bit, you know, honestly, two, two kind of buzzwords, two kind of cool technologies that separately are probably pretty good, but together kind of didn't make sense. I think one of the reasons was that AI itself uh, didn't really pick up at the, at, at the time when we had this prediction. Um, we have been an AI investor since 2011. And frankly speaking, our AI investments have taken way longer uh, to uh, maturize and uh, basically you know, grow compared to our Web3 investments, where we really only started in 2016. So I think we were a little bit too early on the AI piece in itself. And actually, I think we really only see um, AI really from a truly co commercial consumer point of view, really picking up probably now with you know open ai and chat gpt and also google doing things with bard and others uh, where where we are seeing investments that started uh, when it comes to open ai in 2015 only now really generating revenues we had had similar experience on our pure ai investments and that is actually really only picking up now in the last i would say two years so last year we started uh, beginning of last year we started to revisit actually again our ai strategies and Yes, uh, we believe that that's one mega trend. Uh, now, you know, saying that right now in what is it, sixth uh, of April, it's kind of, kind of showing the obvious. Everybody talks about generative AI, right? right? Um, we we did actually come up in January eleventh that we believe not only that generative AI will become big, but also other solutions within generative AI. Um, so for us, this is you know a huge transformational shift again that yeah. we believe is maybe going a little bit too fast, honestly, as well. I think we've seen uh, you know, letters from Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak coming out that things are maybe going too fast. But we do believe in, in terms of you know, administrative tasks, in terms of legal contracts, there we actually really, really believe that it, it is happening. And we are actually implementing it not only internally within our VC, True Global Ventures, but also across all our portfolio companies. And we are looking at two companies that are actually in that space to potentially also invest into them. What is the opportunity for VC in this area? Because when I look at the huge numbers going into acquiring companies like OpenAI by Microsoft and so on, and the amounts that are going, the first amounts of data, the raw source of data that you require to, to make these generative AIs work, um, and then the fact that we've got you know Microsoft and Google and, and these scale companies uh, that are kind of now owning uh, a lot of the, these things and, and moving these ahead with their whether it's chatbots or video or whatever, uh, what what is the scope for small startups to bring innovation to this space and therefore for VCs to fund that versus uh, maybe going back to uh, the days of Thomas Edison style labs that or or uh, Bell you know Bell Labs inventing the transistor where you know the the capabilities were in these giant corporations. So yeah, I mean you have a fair point that you know. Um, suddenly Microsoft has ended up being the coolest company in the world suddenly uh, by forging this partnership with OpenAI. Yeah, Ex except you know, every time I have to go back on the teams, but that's a never story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but so, so I think, you know, and, and, you know, we have a race, obviously, be between the large companies, especially those that have the processing power, right? The cloud power. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons that Microsoft and Google 
and even Amazon and Baidu and others, or uh, Oracle, IBM, are in, in, in the space, Alibaba, Tencent, and so on, the, the, big, the big cloud providers, they have the processing power to do this. But I would say from a startup point of view, what we are looking at is anyone who has you know, a really a proprietary data set. Um, so I would say if you have a proprietary data set um, that is actually pretty good in terms of predictable AI, and with the processing power out there, you know, you, you can really make sure that you can process all the, the models that you have to do to actually get it better and better. Then adding on top of that generative AI becomes a very, very strong model. So you don't only kind of say this will happen or that will happen, but you also articulate it in terms of text or in terms of images in the right way as well. Right. So, so, so that we definitely that... see. Yeah, so Dushan, play that out for me in terms of real-world applications. If not today, then maybe in the next, you know, two to, couple of years. No, you know, actually, next time this, frame. Yeah, actually, this we this what I'm so, talking about now. Actually, we see right now. You know, mm -hmm. uh, actually, it's one of our. It's a little bit kind of um, talking about some of our old companies that finally are, are kicking off this. We, we we have one company which is doing, um, you know, basically AI only for for legal. Mm -hmm. Definitely, it's picking up because I think everybody sees that. The way legal is moving today is that a lot of the kind of traditional policies and work that has been done and reviewing documents can be, I would almost say, completely replaced by open AI, but but can be way, way done much, much quicker and faster. And may, maybe, maybe, maybe the lawyers in, in the future will be more focused on the copyright issues that open AI brings in. So I think there is a shift in the legal um, uh, profession from you know doing these kind of repetitive tasks to, to maybe cop, uh, to maybe move into the copyright issues which, which actually OpenAI asks for is is challenging. Right. So uh, the, the editing issues, making sure that what you're getting is true or accurate, uh, and yeah. that you can you can use that information. Exactly. And, and then moving the legal profession to maybe looking more on the copyright and maybe the governance even of AI, right? Open mm -hmm. AI and other uh, solutions. So, 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 so we see it in legal, yeah, and we have portfolio companies there and yeah, we see them growing um, tremendously. We have another one, just to be clear, which is B2B sales. Um, mm -hmm. B2B sales, you can predict, you know, if you, have, if you have private, if you have proprietary data sets from the client like CRM solutions, and then you're looking also for public data. Yeah, they have, we have a solution there. We're adding the generative AI. That company, for instance, is growing right now with 300% from a low level. Mm -hmm. So, but again, we do see startups that can benefit from that. We also see corporates, other corporates than Microsoft and, and, um, and Google that can profit from it. Bloomberg just announced what they are doing. They have obviously enormous proprietary data sets. So I think it's, you know, it's an interesting, I think there is a premium for being niched. That's what I'm trying to say. If you're okay. in contact marketing, if you're in automating in terms of uh, B2B prospecting sales, if you're niched into legal, I think there is a, a premium for being niched. And why? Because actually you can sell your services not only to the latest Web3 companies or Web2 companies. This is revolutionary, definitely for the non-tech world. And this is so much different from any other tech revolution or evolution we've had, that the non-tech world is hugely interested in this. Real estate, corporate services, you name it, they are interested in this area. So anything that's got data, not necessarily a technology company, but if you've got your own data that you've got you know, proprietorship over or governance over, then you can start to do new things with this data using these generative AIs or, or, or other types of AIs and combining them that you could not do before. Exactly. What are the um, issues in finance? So in finance, when I talk to people about data and data governance, 
uh, you can get into the weeds pretty quickly. Uh, data sovereignty, cybersecurity, um, and just general laws around not, you know, uh, you know, the controls around who can do what with whose data, um, you know, privacy and protection. So what are the issues that your VCs are beginning to stumble into? When, I think you're talking about your portfolio especially company, for, for generative AI and, and predictable AI. So yes, yeah, so so we 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 when it comes to generative AI, yes, as you know, OpenAI itself is only run on to on to data until September 2021. Mm -hmm. So any kind of prediction of Rock Swan events and all, you name it is is impossible. Uh, so one shouldn't really rely a lot on that. Mm -hmm. So if your question is within financial services, it's the same answer, like I said before, in terms of legal administration, it might be on compliance. You know, you're writing loads of compliance um, policies um, all the time. Those um, uh, we have been testing that uh, both internally at TGB as well in our portfolio companies that have heavy compliance because they're regulated. Yes, you, you you can actually get a quicker start on your compliance policies by using generative AI. There is so much data out there. Obviously, you need to double check everything, but you get a head start. So yeah. again, I think it's more on the KYC, on the AML. On the compliance, that's the piece where I think it has an impact on, on financial services, as opposed to which stock should I pick tomorrow. Right. Yes, I, I've tried that on ChatGPT. I asked it to uh, recommend me, uh, you know, give me Coca-Cola buy, sell, or hold, and it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't very useful. I would have lost money if I had relied on on ChatGPT to tell me how to manage my money. Yeah, now this might this might change, right? Because it is an evolution, right? And and the models are getting trained, right? Yeah. So we had three point five in November. We had four point zero in uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And when we compare the differences between three point five and four, it's definitely better. Mm -hmm. uh, I asked, you know, what what's the impact of Silicon Valley going bust? And you know, the answer on three point five and four was definitely much better and much broader. But it's still not, you know, what you want, you know, to basically. Right. It's not going to be. Uh, yeah, it's not going to tell you things that you essentially don't already know. I, I would agree on that. Now, you know, things are evolving, right? So the question is, you know, you know, for how long will, will, will you know, the model is evolving, evolving, when the next version comes, maybe with data that is up to date it, well, then maybe we get better predictability. Yeah. With data and Web3, so the concept, the high concept of Web3, uh, although it still seems to remain pretty much a high concept, is that the provide you know the the contributors to whether it's a project or people making something in the digital creative economy uh, uh, will be empowered to uh, have control over I guess their their copyright of whatever it is that they're creating or doing uh, and be able to to control um, and and you know over consent of of their data and their copyright. Um, how does that? Maybe, I think we'll get into this a little bit, but may, I'd be curious to enter into this topic by looking at if chat GPT and these other AI businesses um, are so attractive to companies that have a proprietary data set, I guess the bigger your data set, the more attractive and the more efficient that becomes for you. Um, and yet with Web3, it's like we want to take that data and disaggregate it and decentralize it. So how do we then... Or is there a, a movement then to find ways to make all of that data somehow um, uh, something you can interrogate and use uh, so that you get the benefits of a large data set uh, without disrupting somebody's uh, consent framework if we do have a more decentralized 
disaggregated uh, ownership and control over over data. Yeah. So, um, so I, I might answer your question directly or not, but you know, I, I would like to be a little, as opposed to be theoretical and mm -hmm. futuristic, to kind of give you maybe a concrete example in, in, in that area. So we we have one company which is in the metaverse, um, one of the players in the metaverse called Sandbox. Mm -hmm. And uh, that particular company has, uh, I think, sold out about 70% of all the land plots in the metaverse. A huge amount of that is being built up by 400 brands. And there are basically 230 uh, independent um, um, creative agencies or production agencies helping the big brands to do that. Now, where does the generative AI concept come into that? Um, I think it's in two areas. Number one, when you have generative AIs, it's very similar, like explained on the legal administration. If you want to build something um, in the virtual world, you can start to get some ideas with generative AI. You can start to get some, like an architecture, even in the real world, can get some ideas what to build his house, like first ideas. Nothing that you, know, you can say, this is exactly how it's gonna be, but first ideas. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you can do that in the virtual world. If you want to build, um, a virtual museum, you can get first ideas what that could look like as an experience. So basically it helps you, it, it, it's the same kind of productivity tool. It helps you to fit faster and quicker, get into ideas, how to build what you want to build in the metaverse. So either it can be the IKEA self-made model that these big brands have you know, capacity internally within the corporates and can do it themselves now, thanks to generative AI tools. And there are quite a few suppliers in that area or the creative agency, the production agencies that are helping the big brands, they will be using the latest tools in order for them to come up with better and newer experience and faster and cheaper. So we mm -hmm. see this as an accelerator for actually companies like Sandbox and Metaverse, but also others, Metaverses as well, of course, right? But, but that's really where we see. We see it as a, as a huge productivity gain, basically, and an okay. accelerator of actually right. distributing the metaverse and making it more concrete. Okay, so I understand the idea that, okay, you can go, I mean, we've seen it on Instagram and places where the, you, you get generate these sort of fake, but sort of attractive looking landscapes, architectures, uh, yeah. interiors, and so on. Um, and, you know, so that's, that seems like a pretty reasonable leap that, you know, just take that as a, as a guide, because I guess in the metaverse, you can, you can make it look however you want it to look, I, I assume. Um, but I'm still trying to grasp if, if you know companies like Microsoft and Oracle and Baidu are uh, are, are interested in this at doing large scale stuff, or if any company with enough of its proprietary data can can use these tools to to interrogate that data and get something out of it, um, so non tech companies, uh, what what does that imply for a new model where if if this data is is meant to be secure behind web three protocols so that you know small businesses individuals whomever now have a lot more control so you don't have a facebook or an amazon or a, you know or a wechat that can basically instantly do whatever it wants because it's got all the tnc's it's got everybody's data and it, you know it can just sort of you know throw its weight around so you know where where will be the balance in terms of the value creation using these things if you don't have access anymore in a web three context to you know such massive amounts of data based on sort of web two type of business models? Yeah, 
I, I think web three companies definitely have um, um, proprietary data sets mm -hmm. and they can even, uh, you know, digitalize and make ownership of it in terms of the, you know, NFTs and other uh, ways of monetizing the proprietary data sets. So I don't see that being as, as a huge issue in the more distributed decentralized models. It's basically how it's basically how you make the ownership of the data set, but the data set is there uh, definitely. Um, so, um, so it's, it's, uh, it's there and, and then it's really to make sure that the community who has built up uh, the metaverses, for instance, if it's decentralized on sandbox uh, are also having part of that ownership. And, and, in the, and then it becomes much, much stronger than any, any centralized system. So it's still the same philosophy, centralizations versus decentralization. If you have a strong community, which, which has a strong incentive in terms of ownership and data, yes, you are pretty strong in terms of very, very strong centralized powers. Um, now, for me, it's really uh, about figuring out um, the processing power that those companies do provide, though, makes it attractive to basically get better predictability in those data sets. And I think that's where it's a win-win game. Um, so now, where are we going to go? If it goes um, out of control and you don't have any governments around it, then it starts to become scary, right? Uh, I do think that decentralized um, decentralized um, models are better from that point of view because you have the government's issue. Because what I'm seeing is that this is going so fast that you know regulation will come into place. Because if if Microsoft, if Azure becomes too strong in terms or Google in terms of owning all the data in the world, regulations will come into place exactly like we had in the centralized exchanges when it comes to FTX and Binance. Mm -hmm. So and what we saw then when FTX and Binance collapsed, well, Bitcoin went up, right? So, I, you know, I don't want to be predictable. We're talking about here hypothesis, what's going to happen in two, three, four years. I don't think this is in 2023. But I do see that a decentralized structure will always be a, a soft landing in terms of governance and where the value is. And, and then, in, in the, so, so to kind of summarize, in the short term, yes, I think Microsoft and Google are, are winners of this, big winners. And others that have a decentralized structure may not be winners. But at some stage, when you see that, you know, centralized powers is becoming too strong and you have the same issues that you had with FTX and Binance and so on, then the decentralized will come back again. So short term, I think Microsoft is a winner. Long term, I think the decentralized structures are winners. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And just, I guess Binance hasn't actually collapsed just to put that in uh, context. FTX did, but I think Binance might have his issues, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, sorry about collapsed. that. It, it yeah. has definitely not collapsed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um the what, what's happening with um I, I guess with with governance of these of these virtual spaces or these large web three uh, you know embryonic businesses i mean can you say with confidence that um that there is a that there are DAOs, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations or other governance forms that are are working the way that they're supposed to work or that they're envisaged yes i mean definitely um uh, decentralized is an example of a completely decentralized metaverse. Uh, now, if it's working or not working, you know, there are a lot of, you know, journalists writing this and that, but but clearly it's out there and working. Uh, we, we, we saw another example, which is from our portfolio, which is Animoca has invested into something called Adedid, 
um, which actually has worked out extremely well during Q1 uh, compared to Q4. And it's definitely also partly uh, decentralized in terms of what kind of rights each uh, holder has. So yes, I do think that um, maybe we don't have fully decentralized models like you know Bitcoin would be in, um, in finance, but we definitely have partly decentralized models already happening. Uh, but how, how, yeah, but but when it comes to like Decentraland or these kinds of places, I mean, essentially, it's still the 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 main stakeholders behind the foundation that you know tend to call the shots, uh, as opposed to the the DAO or or the people that are building you know a, a, you know a bank or a, a cosmetics company, whoever is building a, a a site there. Yeah, I don't I don't want to comment exactly how the DAO and Decentraland works because I don't know the details if if it is really uh, you know, some people be behind it uh, that are calling the shots. I think the, the future will tell on that. But what I'm trying to say is the more you involve the community, the better. Um, uh, in, you know, maybe there are some that are making more decisions than others. I, I don't want to comment on that. But it's definitely better than having a traditional centralized uh, structure the way we know it uh, from uh, Web2. Um, and I think, you know, that might be the reason for where, where some uh, large corporates who kind of and came into the hype very quickly in terms of metaverse has actually are already, if I may say so, abandoning it mm -hmm. because they had a very centralized approach from the very beginning. And that actually does mean there is at least a bit less of competition because they are maybe not as ambitious as they were before. And at the end of the day, there are only so many metaverses you know, that we need out there and in, in terms of the future. So I think uh, what we have seen in, in the metaverse is a little bit similar like in, in finance that some of the large centralized actors uh, have had either collapsed uh, or actually abandoned uh, partly. And actually the, the more decentralized uh, are, are benefiting. Now, if they're completely decentralized to your point, it might not be true, but they are definitely more decentralized than, than the kind of traditional Web2 companies. Dushan, we're coming close to uh, our, our time. I think we could spend uh, quite a long time discussing this. We've really only scratched the surface. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll come back. I don't want to overtax uh, you, uh, but maybe just to wrap up, um, we won't have time to really delve into this properly, but when it comes to that combination of Web3 and AI, uh, just a couple of more th thoughts from you. Um, well, um, I, I think... For us, um, I think it has kind of a, a huge um, impact, um, the generative AI space in general, not like I said, not only for Web3, right? So we do believe that's one area which is very interesting. Um, and yes, that is profoundly interesting. I, what I would say is that um, for us, it, the most interesting piece for us is actually maybe how we operate as a VC. Um, because what you've seen is that probably our own companies, our own investment firms do not use a lot of technology. And so I think one thing that I believe in a lot is, and we predicted this five years ago, but I think it's going to happen actually. Now the market is more mature for it. On one hand, that a lot of the processes within the VCs are using the latest technology. So being, you know, more, you know, doing deal sourcing through AI technology, 
especially when it comes to series B and upwards, you can definitely use way more technology. Mm. When you do your content marketing that you use generative AI, when you do your prospecting in terms of which leads you want to invest in that you use basically the latest tool and that you have sales objections using generative AI, that every single process that you have in the VC internally is more used with technology in terms of AI and generative AI. When it comes to the Web3 concept, I, I do believe that VCs will need to start to, to get liquidity, internal liquidity, very much the way it's done in Web3. So, so and, and because a lot of LPs want to get in and out quicker than 10 years, and Web3 is a solution for that. So for us, what is the most interesting part, you know, to add on the whole discussion on the interface between Web3 and AI is actually our own uh, companies, investment firms, which have not been, we are a non-tech company. Right. Right. And, and actually what I said from the very beginning is I think that the generative AI impact will be even bigger on non-tech than on Web3. So I, I think it's a, a wake-up signal for also for the whole VC industry, you know, mm. how, how the VC industry itself is going to adapt these technologies as opposed to just looking for the technologies or asking the portfolio companies to implement them. And that would be very interesting because that really hasn't happened. I mean, other than, okay, we use email and, and, and uh, you know, I guess, you know, WhatsApp or something. Uh, but other than that, VC is still often just uh, run kind of like a, a private law firm with a bunch of guys around a table, usually guys, uh, uh, you know, who, you know, make these decisions. Of course, they have data. Some of them are more data-led than others, but they're not really using the technologies that they themselves have been investing in. Um, so that would be a big change. What does that mean for VCs? You know, we hear a lot about the need for venture to focus, refocus on on hard tech, um, or at least that the opportunities uh, in the next decade or so will probably be more to be found in hard tech than in the kind of internet companies that boomed in the past 20 years, aided by uh, the low interest rate environment. Now we have a new environment. Um, will you be able to also use these tools either just to be more efficient so you can focus more on more difficult, more challenging kind of investment theses and, and company due diligence? Or can the AI actually help you more directly with some of that? Yes, I do think so. I do mm -hmm. think uh, that it can help in due diligence. I do think that, uh, that sometimes you're just looking for red flags when you invest. Uh, I do think that it can be a tremendous accelerator in terms of due diligence and deal sourcing as well. And now, I do want to mention one last uh, thing, um, if you permit me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one thing we discussed was centralization and decentralization, right? And so we, are, we talk about the hypothesis, a lot of what can happen in the metaverse, which we really don't know, right? So it's a little bit futuristic. But one thing that we have seen, which is, for me, amazing, um, it, our companies, and we did this you know, recent investment in a company called um, Ledger. What, yeah. what I found extremely interesting there were when they started to do some data points on how hardware revenues, their own hardware revenues, mm. which is basically very, very tangible and concrete because you, you have the hardware and you plug it in in order to get access to your tokens, right? How that is correlated to the ETF gold price. And basically what they did was they looked in, in the past year for every single crisis when we had the Terra Luna crash, which was in May 22, then hardware revenues for Ledger went up, but so did also gold price. So the correlation was pretty high. Same thing happened when FTX collapsed in November. There was a 90% correlation between hardware revenues from Ledger and ETF gold. And in the last 
uh, collapse here with the four American banks and what happened with Credit Suisse and UBS, the correlation was 81%. So, so for me, you know, we, all this is way more interesting when you see data. I mean, mm -hmm. that's why I'm kind of bringing it up because yeah. you can talk about correlation, this and anti-cyclic and resilient, and it's all kind of um, words that are um, somehow qualitative words, but you can't quantify it. And, and when you show this as a data point, then it's pretty clear. And, and, and then you can actually make decisions much quicker. When we saw those data points, for us, it was a no-brainer to actually invest into Ledger. Because you felt that the data was supporting their business model or because you felt that the, the insights that their, their data work is getting will help you, you, you want access to their insights to help you with other decisions? Both, but to start with, you know, just just that the data pay that those data points basically showed me um, that you know it's correlated to something else as well, and not right. just that their business model is working. Because what you are looking for when you invest into what is still a bear market, you're looking for anti-cyclical businesses, you're looking for resilient businesses. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people claim that they are that, but if you can start to correlate it and show it with data points, yeah. Then, then you have something that is hardcore that you actually, uh, you know, can make a quicker decision on. So, so I'm I'm trying to say that that that's the data points that makes a VC invest quicker, yeah. and and if the, the companies can show those kind of data points, it makes them also show a little bit better how their business model works, which actually doesn't make it only more attractive to investors but also to their consumers. I think this is a great place to leave it, Dushan. Um, that's super interesting. I really enjoy chatting with you and getting an insight. I think I learned a little bit more, not just about uh, what you see going on in, in Web3 and AI, but also how that's going to impact the VC and the investing industry and, and other industries as well. So thank you so much for joining me on Digifin Vox. Thank you very much for having me.